Well, good morning, church. I've already said good morning once to you, but good morning again. Um, man, before we start, I just want to say what a joy it is to uh, get to preach the word today. Um, and, and really to just, as we've, as, we've been, as we've been walking through the book of Ephesians uh, for the last few months, uh, to see the way that God's word has already begun to shape and mold the, the hearts and lives of our people here at this church. Uh, it's just been a, it's been a joy to watch that uh, unfold. And so if you have a Bible with you, go ahead and flip with me to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6. While you're turning there, uh, I just have one very quick announcement uh, this coming Saturday on July 22nd, we are hosting a movie night in the park. Uh, park is a little bit of a subjective term. It's actually in the parking lot of Galm Elementary, just right down the road. Uh, but I would love for you to join us in that. We've invited a number of people from the community. It's a really neat way as well uh, for, for the church uh, to gather together in fellowship uh, and just a really... Uh, fun and, and stress-free night of watching The Incredibles, eating some popcorn, and if you're into cotton candy, there will be cotton candy there uh, as well. So that's going to start at 7.30. We're going to have yard games uh, and the popcorn and cotton candy ready to go, and at 8.30 is when the movie is going to start. So July 22nd uh, at 7.30 and 8.30. Now, I want to begin our time this morning with a, a question. You don't have to answer it out loud, uh, but just, just think about it in your mind. But when you think about the, the concept or the topic of spiritual warfare, what typically comes to mind? What comes to mind when you think about spiritual warfare? Maybe for some of you who, who grew up in this camp, maybe your mind is taken back to old vacation Bible school teachers who, who uh, were reenacting what it looks like to put on the armor of God. Maybe for some of you, your imagination takes you to a, a Lord of the Rings-like cosmic battlefield with Christ and his angels on one side and, and Satan and his gargoyle-looking demons on the other, and they're running together uh, to, to form this cosmic clash that's going to take place. Maybe for some of you, especially if you're, uh, if you're not a believer, if you're not a Christian, Maybe for you, you're thinking, what did I get myself into this morning coming to church, talking about spiritual warfare? I've never even considered the concept for myself. Likewise, what, what comes to mind when you think about uh, Satan and demons? Are they real? Do they actually exist or are they figments of our imagination that pastors and parents have conjured up to keep us spiritually in line? Are they real or not? You see, Barna Research, it's a, a Christian research group, Barna Research, all the way back in 2009, so I'm sure the statistic is actually a little bit higher now, but all the way back in 2009, Barna conducted a study that showed that 40% of American Christians, not just Americans, but American Christians, did not believe Satan existed. But instead, they thought of Satan as merely a symbol for evil. Satan was some type of like Aesop's fable for the concept of evil. You see, spiritual warfare has fallen on hard times in our day today. On the one hand, 
We believe that we're people of, of logic and science. There's no concept in our minds for spiritual warfare because we live in a post-enlightened age where, where reason and logic and science are championed. And because we can't empirically prove spiritual warfare exists, because we can't empirically prove that Satan and demons exist and they're waging war against the church, then we punt on the concept and the idea. On the other hand... Spiritual warfare has fallen on hard times and it's thought of so little in our context today, especially amongst Christians, because we, we, we shape and we form our theological, theological convictions and understanding of spiritual warfare and Satan from Hollywood more than we do our Bibles. You see, the Apostle Paul, as he was writing the letter to the Ephesians, Paul clearly saw the reality of spiritual warfare. Paul saw clearly how real Satan is. And he saw clearly the war that Satan was waging and was going to wage against God's people. That's why in the text that we're going to be going through and unpacking today, we're going to see Paul call the Ephesian church to stand firm against the schemes of Satan by putting on the whole armor of God. And that's really, our, that's really the main point of the sermon this morning. So if you're someone who likes to take notes, or you just like to have a general direction, or an idea of the direction that we're heading, then the, the sermon in a sentence, or the main point of the sermon, is this. Put on the whole armor of God so that you can stand firm against the schemes of Satan. I'll say that again. Put on the whole armor of God so that you can stand firm against the schemes of Satan. Now this, this concept and this notion of, of standing or withstanding is prevalent in the text that we're going to be studying today. Paul mentions the word stand or, or withstand or some variation of the word stand four times in four verses. Which for us, as we're reading this text, it should draw our attention to the urgency in Paul's writing. And my prayer is that as we walk through this text this morning, we too will see Paul's urgency. And then we will take heed of the exhortation that he's giving here. This morning I want to point out uh, two exhortations that, that really play on Paul's usage of the word stand in this text. First, I want us to see that we're to stand in the Lord. We're to stand in the Lord. And secondly, we are to stand against Satan. So we're to stand in the Lord and we're to stand against Satan. So that's the direction where we are heading this morning. So I'm going to read the text. I'm going to pray for us. I'll give us a little bit of context of where we are in the story and then we'll dive in and we'll unpack this text together. So Ephesians chapter 6, starting in verse 10. We're, we're picking back up in our sermon series. Last week, Keith walked us through chapter 6, verse 1, all the way through verse 9. And today, we're picking back up in verse 10. And the Apostle Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, writes this. He says, Finally, be strong in the Lord. And in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God. That you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh 
and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Verse 13, Therefore take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Father, I pray this morning that as we, uh, as we approach your word, God, I pray that we would humble ourselves by falling on our knees before the cross and we would see, Lord, that, that our strength is in you. Our strength is not in ourselves. Help us to see the reality of spiritual warfare, that Satan wants nothing more than to sift the church. Satan wants nothing more than to keep the veil, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians, to keep the veil of the, uh, of the light of the gospel over those who are perishing. But God, this morning I pray that the gospel would shine bright. Christ, you would be magnified. And Lord, we would, we would turn to trust in you for the strength to get through the spiritual warfare that is before us. And that you would keep us from turning inward. God, sanctify us, move us from one degree of glory to the next Lord, we need you. I need you as I preach. God, help, help me not to say anything of my own volition, but only to preach Christ and Him crucified. Lord, would you move here in this place this morning? And I pray these things in the mighty, magnificent, powerful name of Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Now, some biblical scholars, as they uh, comb through the book of Ephesians, they, they break this book into three main divisions. Chapters 1 through 3 that we studied a few months ago, they're often called the sit section. In this section, Paul unpacks profound theological truths that we are meant to sit under and to listen to and to believe for our lives. And then in chapter 4, Paul transitions all the way through the beginning of chapter 6, this, is, this section is often called the walk section. So chapter 4, all the way through the beginning of chapter 6, are called the walk section, where we are to practically walk out the theological truths and convictions that Paul just laid out for us in chapters 1 through 3. And lastly, the rest of chapter 6 that we're going we're gonna to study today, and John's going to round out for us tomorrow, this section is called the stand section. So sit walk and stand and in this last section we are instructed to stand firm in the midst of spiritual warfare until the end and it is to this final section of Paul's letter to the Ephesians that we now turn our attention you see in chapter 6 verse 10 Paul shifts his thinking into a new thought by using the phrase finally if you've been with us from the beginning as we've been walking through the book of Ephesians, as you see the word finally, maybe you're thinking in your mind, finally, we're going to be finishing Ephesians pretty soon. But as Paul begins to shift his thinking, he's going to give us uh, the first exhortation that we see here in this text. So, so point number one, or, or exhortation number one, is this. We are to stand in the Lord. We are to stand in the Lord. Look with me at verse 10. Paul says this, he says, Finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. 
You see, Paul's concluding words to the Ephesians, the last thing that he says in his letter to the Ephesians, are an exhortation that drives the remainder of the letter. Paul is essentially telling them, Ephesians, I've just laid out incredible gospel truths before you. Chapters 1 through 3. I've told you how you were to practically walk out these gospel truths. Chapters 4 through the beginning of chapter 6. And in light of this, in light of these two things, the vertical and horizontal approach, in light of this, stand firm. Because the days ahead will be difficult. There'll be challenge and strife. Spiritual warfare will be waged against you. John Piper, who's a, who's a previous pastor and theologian and author, uh, he says this about verse 10. He says, when, when the Ephesians would have initially heard verse 10, it would, have, uh, it would have been baffling for them to hear. Piper says that it's as if Paul is telling the Ephesians, grow the strength of your biceps by taking the strength of someone else's biceps and putting them on your own. It doesn't make any sense for Paul to say, Ephesians, stand firm in the Lord and in the strength of His might. On the surface, it doesn't make sense. So let's dive in and let's unpack this concept of standing firm in the midst of spiritual warfare. You see, when, when spiritual war is being waged against the church, to whom are we to turn for strength? Are we to turn to ourselves? Do we look inward for ourselves, to ourselves? You see, for many of us, whether it's conscious or subconscious, this is exactly the posture we take. When Satan throws the kitchen sink at us, when, when suffering and, and anguish and, and fear and trembling abound for many of us, we turn inward and we rely on our own strength to be enough to get us through. We try to pull ourselves up by our proverbial spiritual bootstraps and we white-knuckle our way through the storm. And friends, I'll be the first to admit I'm often guilty of this. When suffering and persecution and fear and trembling and anguish and pain come, my temptation is to pull myself up by my bootstraps and white-knuckle my way through the storm. But hear me when I say this. And I'm saying this to myself just as much as I'm saying it to you. You are not as strong as you think you are. You are not as strong as you think you are. I am not as strong as I like to sometimes think I am. I don't say that to belittle you. I don't say that to tear you down. I say that because it's true for all of us. No matter how strong we think we are, no matter what we've been through in our lives, no matter what our spiritual pedigree looks like, no matter how long we've attended church, no matter how many seminary degrees we have, no matter how long you've been a pastor, we cannot stand against the schemes of Satan on our own. You may think that you're capable of standing against Satan alone, isolated and alienated from the Lord, but if that's the posture you take, if that's the posture that I take, we will fall 10 times out of 10 in that situation. 10 out of 10 people fall when they rely on their own strength. When you turn inward and rely on your own strength, you are easy prey for Satan. 
When you forsake yourself from the gathering of the body, when you think, you know what, Lord, I've got this on my own, you are, you are easy prey for Satan. Our strength and our ability to stand firm in the midst of spiritual warfare comes only from the reality that we are united to Christ by faith. I'm going to say that again because that's the most important thing you can hear me say this morning. Our strength and our ability to stand firm in the midst of spiritual warfare comes only from the reality that we are united to Christ by faith. You see, the fact of the matter is this. All we have and all we are comes from our unity in Christ. There's a modern hymn that we sometimes sing here at the church by Sovereign Grace Music. And the the, the modern hymn is titled, All I Have is Christ. And the chorus says it beautifully and plainly. The chorus says this, Hallelujah! All I have is Christ. Hallelujah, Jesus is my life. We see this all throughout the book of Ephesians. If you've been tracking with us through this letter up to this point, we've seen the the, the common theme and the common thread of this book is Paul highlighting the fact that we've been united to Christ. The unity of our unity with Christ is one of the, is is arguably the most significant benefit of being saved and reconciled and redeemed to Christ. All the way through Ephesians, we've seen this. God chose us and predestined us in Christ to receive redemption through His blood. Chapter one, Ephesians chapter one, verses three through ten. In Christ, we have obtained the inheritance of eternal life. Chapter 1, verse 11. We're made alive with Christ. Chapter 2, verse 5. We're raised with Christ. Chapter 2, verse 6. We're seated with Christ in the heavenly places. Chapter 2, verse 6. In Christ. We were once far off. We were strangers and aliens of the covenant, but we've been brought near in Christ. Chapter 2, verse 13. Friends, there is no strength. There is no might. There is nothing that we have Apart from Christ. Except you you look in chapter 2. Children of wrath. Sinners. That's what we have apart from Christ. That's our portion apart from Christ. Even in Paul's intercessory prayer back in chapter 1. Paul prays that 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 the Lord would do this for the Ephesians. He says... Lord, I pray that you would have the eyes of their hearts enlightened. That they may know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe. Friend, do you know that power? Do you know that strength? It's not a, it's not a Superman type strength. You're not going to somehow turn into Bruce Wayne or, or Tony Stark. It's not a superpower. But it's a strength, it's an assurance, it's a firm foundation, an anchor that roots us firmly in Christ that is enough to see us through. And that strength is freely given to you if you're in Christ this morning. Brother or sister who's in Christ, maybe you you came here this morning, maybe you limped through the door, 
Maybe, you've, maybe you came limping through the door, feeling beaten and distraught. Maybe you're in the, in the midst of intense suffering. Intense persecution. You may have arrived this morning not wanting to be asked the question, how's your week, when you know it's been a disaster and a whirlwind of emotional and spiritual strain. If that's you this morning, can I simply posit to you that you're right where you need to be? If you're in Christ, you don't need to try harder. The message of the gospel is not be better. It's not just try harder next time. Maybe, you know, maybe you'll get it next week, champ. That's not the message of the gospel. You need to look to Christ. If you walked in here limping this morning, you need to look to Christ. You don't need to try harder. You need to look to Christ, the author and the perfecter of your faith. And know that it is He and He alone who has given you His strength. Not your strength. He's given you His strength to persevere in the midst of suffering. The pain and the anguish may not subside immediately. Many times it doesn't subside for a long time. To trust in the assurance of Christ, to to rely on the strength that He gives, it doesn't just whisk your problems away willy-nilly. It doesn't mean that that trusting in the strength of Christ is going to give you health, wealth, and prosperity. That's very contrary to the, to the, to the Bible. You look, at, you look all throughout the Scriptures of, of different characters, both Old and New Testament, who relied in the strength of Christ, yet characters like Job had everything taken away. The Apostle Paul and the other apostles were, were martyred for the faith. The early church saw intense persecution, yet they remained strong and firm in the Lord. Friend, if that's you this morning, know that your problems may not magically disappear. Relying in the strength of Christ may not take the pain and anguish away. But the assurance of Christ in His strength and in His power that He gives you will see you through. So stand firm in His strength and not your own. In a similar manner, maybe you're visiting with us for the first time. Or maybe you've been coming around for a few weeks uh, and, and you're realizing that you don't really know the strength of the Lord. You've heard the gospel preached week in and week out and you don't actually know what we're talking about. This concept seems foreign to you. Maybe you as well are in the throes of suffering. And it took everything you had to, to get up and get ready this morning, to get the kids ready, to come and drive to church. You put on a brave face and maybe you've met some new people you haven't met before. But at the end of the day, you can't seem to find rest for your weary soul. You've tried all the things. You've tried the self-help books. You've tried other religions and other religious experiences. You've tried just giving up and indulging and just giving in to the passions of your flesh, thinking that those things will take the edge off a bit. But you still can't find rest for your weary soul. Friend, if that is you this morning, maybe it's time to stop trying to rely on your own strength and to rely and relying on yourself. And to start relying on the strength of Christ. You see, His strength and His might are offered to you today as a free gift. 
The attacks from Satan will continue to come regardless of whether or not you repent and believe or whether or not you stay in your sin. But if your soul is tired of fighting a battle that it cannot win, you need to turn to Christ. And turn to a strength and a might that has already won on your behalf. Call out to the Lord today and say, Lord, I can't fight this war. I can't fight this battle on my own. My strength is not sufficient, but yours is. And he will be gracious to save you and to rescue you from the schemes of Satan. Friends, the the strength and the might of the Lord are not these ethereal concepts that, that, that are lofty and high in the air, that have no footing in reality. They're tangible truths that we can rest assured in today. We can have the utmost confidence that the Lord's strength is for today and is for eternity. Listen to John's description of what happens to Satan and his army on the last day. In Revelation chapter 20, starting in verse 7, going to verse 10, John writes this. He says, And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth. Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth, and they surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet were. And they will be tormented day and night forever." Now, there's a lot there. Like you, could, you could spend a whole sermon just unpacking those four verses. But without getting into the weeds of the imagery of this passage, the outcome is clear. Satan and his army will be defeated. They will be crushed by the Lord in judgment. There is no secret as to who is going to win the war. The war has already been won. One of my professors, Dr. Benjamin Merkel, He commented on uh, Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10, saying, Isn't it significant that believers are not urged to win the victory? For that's already been secured by Christ. You see, the war was won at the cross and the tomb when Jesus was raised from the dead. Trust and know then that the strength of the Lord is a strength that will endure for today and for eternity. You see, this, this first exhortation, this, this point number one here, it really answers the question, uh, how are we to stand firm? And the second exhortation, where we're going to turn our attention to now, this, this second exhortation answers the question, why do we need to stand firm in the first place? So point number two, or, or exhortation number two is this, we are to stand against Satan. We are to stand against Satan. Look with me at verse 11. The Apostle Paul says this. He says, Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Now, verse 11 here is is an explanation. It's a modifier of verse 10. Verse 10 really sets the stage for uh, verses 11 through 20. And so if we are to stand firm in the Lord and in the strength of his might, 
This means that we must put on the full armor of God and prepare for the war that is to come. Paul uses uh, military language here to draw out the nature of the spiritual war that the Ephesians are about to face. Now, I don't want to go into too much detail about what the full armor of God actually is, uh, because John's going to cover that for us next week in verses 14 through 20. I don't want to take John's material for next week. I'll leave him, I'll, I'll, I'll set the tee up for him and let him tee off from there. I do, though, I, I do want us to examine who it is that is waging war against the church. Look with me at verse 12. Paul says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and against blood, but instead against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. You see, friends, our fight is not against flesh and blood. Our fight is not against uh, fellow image bearers. Our fight is not against brothers and sisters, though Satan would love nothing more than for us to continue to be blind to the spiritual warfare and caught up with waging war against one another. You see, we live in a a culture and a time today that is growing. Uh, The chasm of division is is growing deeper and deeper by the day. It seems like every every day there's some type of new thing that, that widens the gap between people. But let me make one thing abundantly clear this morning. Let's all, let's all be honest. Let me put my cards on the table and make this abundantly clear. Our fight is not against flesh and blood. That means that the Democrats are not the enemy. The Republicans are not the enemy. Joe Biden and Donald Trump are not our enemies. Our fight isn't against black people or white people. Our fight isn't against those who are powerful and those who are weak. Our fight isn't against your spouse who has wronged you. And it, is, it, it, it isn't against the family member who's neglected you. The spiritual war that is being waged against the church has far more reaching implications and spiritual components driving it than we can often see. You see, of all people, of all people who could argue that the war against the church is against flesh and blood would be Paul, right? Paul had all the reason in the world to think his fight was against creation, was against uh, fellow image bearers. He had been beaten. He had been stoned. He had been scorned. He had been mocked. He was thrown in prison. All you have to do is read the 2 Corinthians 11 to see all the things that Paul went through for the sake of the gospel. The entire letter of 2 Corinthians is a defense for Paul's apostolic ministry, not despite his, uh, his persecution, but in light of his persecution, in light of his present suffering. Yet Paul knew that an underlying force lay at the root of it. And it makes sense, though, that our fight is not against flesh and blood, right? Like if our fight was merely against flesh and blood, then our own fleshly power could overcome it. If our war was against one another, if you and I were at war with one another, then we could simply vote new people into office, 
We could write up new laws. We could encourage the church to take up arms. We could move the church to a remote and secluded location. And ultimately the war would cease. But the war isn't against flesh and blood. So brothers and sisters, we have to stop treating it like it is. We have to stop treating each other like we are at war with one another and recognize the spiritual warfare that is going on around us. We must see the bigger picture that spiritual warfare is being waged from a foe who is far stronger than anything we could ever overcome in our own strength. Paul tells us in verse 12 that it is the rulers, the authorities... The cosmic powers over this present darkness. The spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. It's these people who are waging war against the church. And we don't have time to unpack the different categories or the different ranks of how Paul lists these beings. But know that the basic principle is this. Satan and his army of demons are the ones who are waging war against the church. Satan and his army of demons are the ones who wage war against the church. Again, turning to Revelation, we see John paint this picture for us in Revelation 12. In Revelation 12, John, there's this imagery of of a woman who, who represents the covenant community of God's people and a dragon who represents Satan. And they're caught up in this cosmic war with one another. And when the, dra- when the woman gives birth to a son, when, when Christ, who comes through the lineage of the covenant people of God, when he is born, the son defeats the dragon, Satan, at the cross and at the tomb. And the dragon recognizes his defeat, and, he tell- and, and, and John tells us this in Revelation 12. John says, And when the dragon, Satan, saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman, the covenant people of God, who had given birth to the male child. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring. Who were her offspring? Those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. It's Satan and his army of demons who are waging war against the church. So the question then becomes this. How does Satan wage war against the church? What are the schemes of Satan that Paul warns us to stand firm against? Well, this is where the difficulty of the text comes into play. Because the reality is that the schemes of Satan are incredibly broad and are incredibly numerous. Here in this text, Paul does not give us a definitive list or an exhaustive list of what schemes to be on the lookout for. Paul doesn't go and give any forward reconnaissance and send it back to the camp to tell us what we should be on the lookout for. And so for us, for us to really put some, for for us to, to allow the rubber to meet the road here, I want to walk us through three ways that Satan has historically and is currently waging war against the church. And so in no way are these three things exhaustive, but it is helpful for us to see in our context today. The first way that Satan wages war against the church uh, is through false teaching. Satan has used the scheme of false teaching since the earliest days of the church. 
We see multiple instances of this in the New Testament. In Galatians chapter 1, verses 6 through 9, Paul says, he tells the Galatians, I'm astonished that you were so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some of you, there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. In 2 Timothy, Paul tells Timothy that a time will come when people will not endure sound teaching. In Paul's letter to the Philippians, he warns the Philippians to watch out for false teachers who he calls uh, evildoers, mutilators of the flesh, and dogs. False teaching was prevalent in all the way back in the first century. Now Jesus tells us in John chapter 10 verse 29 that no one will be able to snatch those who are his out of the Father's hand. So know that those of us who are in Christ, those of us who have repented and believed in the the message of the gospel, we are uh, safely secure in the hand of Christ. Satan cannot pluck us out. But Satan would love nothing more than to twist the message of the gospel just enough so that those who are believing in this twisted gospel think that they're safe in Christ, yet actually don't know Christ at all. We see this most clearly today in a works-based theology or a works-based gospel. Do enough good, do enough right things, and maybe, if you've been good enough, God will, and if you've tipped the cosmic scales in your favor when you die, uh, God will let you into heaven. This is the most common response that I hear when I go out and share the gospel with people today. I'll ask them some form of, how are you saved? What does it mean to be a Christian? X, Y, Z. And I get some form of the response, as long as I'm a good person. As long as I just do enough good. As long as I'm not as bad as the murderer or the thief who's in prison. Then God will let me into heaven. Friends, that is a lie straight from the father of lies himself. Satan would love to twist the message of the gospel to have you and others believe that if you're just good enough, if you just do enough right things, then you'll get into heaven. Because if you believe that gospel, 10 out of 10 people will not make it to heaven. 10 out of 10 people will be separated from God forever if you believe that gospel. The gospel is not do more good. The gospel is you you can't do enough good. Only Christ has done enough good for you. Therefore, repent and believe. So we see it in false teaching. The second way Satan often wages war against the church is through sexual immorality. Much like false teaching, sexual immorality was infiltrating the church even in Paul's day. Paul tells us in Romans 1 of those who, who knew God, who knew that God existed yet they harden their hearts towards them and subsequently God gives them over to the passions of their flesh. Where Paul says this, he says, For this reason, because they harden their hearts, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature, and the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passions for one another. So that was one way sexual immorality had infiltrated the church. The second way in 1 Corinthians, uh, early in 1 Corinthians, Paul makes mention of a story, or not a story, it actually happened um, of 
this man who had started this intimate and sexual relationship with either his mother-in-law or his mother. The Greek's not super clear there. Uh, and Paul says, you should, this man should not be a part of your church. So sexual immorality was alive and well in the first century. And Satan loves to use sexual immorality as a means to discredit the church and attempt to devalue the power of the gospel. We see this today in the sexual revolution and the LGBTQ issues that are sweeping through the culture and the church is fractured on what to do about it. You see some churches saying, well, we'll, we'll, we'll give in and we'll, we'll bow the knee to the culture. Other churches are saying we're going to stand firm on the truth of the word of God. But you don't only see it in those issues. You also see it in the rampant addiction of pornography among Christians today. There's a, there was a study I saw the other day that was disheartening that said um, over 75% of Christians aged uh, 18 to 25, this was about three years ago, um, Christians ages 18 to 25 watched pornography on a weekly basis, on a regular basis. So this disease, this cancer is running rampant through the church. You also see it in the number of pastors that you hear about today who are resigning over significant moral failures pertaining to sexual immorality. You see, when Satan can cause Christians to stumble and fall with sexual immorality, a watching and dying world loses sight of the beauty of Christ because of sexual immorality in the people of Christ. We distort the message of the gospel. So Satan wages war on the church through false teaching, through sexual immorality, and thirdly, through physical persecution. Now, historically, Satan has waged significant warfare against the church by bringing about physical persecution. Again, you only need to read 2 Corinthians 11 to see that this is the case. But physical persecution for us is a bit foreign. It's foreign to the church in the U.S. And, and we have to understand that for the past 250 years, we've lived in a time that is unprecedented in church history. The, time, the, the, the religious freedom that we've been able to partake in for the last 250 years has not been the norm in church history. Brothers and sisters, historically and even globally today, face the threat of physical persecution on a regular basis. Satan's hope for Job in the Old Testament was that if, he would, if, if, if Satan could take away Job's wealth, his prominent status, his family, his own health then he would be able to cause Job to curse the Lord. And Satan knows for us today that if he can ratchet up the tension on the church with physical persecution, then he can keep the people of God from regularly gathering together in which, as I mentioned earlier, they become easy prey. While we don't experience physical persecution much today, it is growing as the cultural tide shifts and the people of God stand opposed to much of what the culture at large sees as true. Now I want to very quickly close out our time uh, by we, we've seen how we, how we remain strong in the Lord. We see who, we've weighed, or who we are to stand firm against. We've seen three ways that Satan wages war against the church. And lastly, I want to close very quickly with a couple of practical applications for how we today can stand firm in the Lord. We can stand against the schemes of Satan. The first, we need to be Bible people. We need to be Bible people. The writer of Psalm 119 says this. He says, I open my mouth and I pant because I long for your commandments. Turn to me and be gracious to me as is your way with those who love your name. Keep steady my steps. 
according to your promise and let no iniquity get dominion over me. Friends, if we're going to withstand the schemes of Satan, we must be a people who see the importance and the necessity of the word of God. And like the psalmist says, we must pant for the word like our life depends on it. Second, we need to be praying people. We need to be praying people. Jesus modeled in the Lord's prayer to pray, lead us not into temptation, Lord, but deliver us from evil. If we're going to stand firm in the Lord and withstand the schemes of Satan, then we must pray to the one in whom we draw strength and we must diligently ask him to remind us of the strength that we have in Christ so that we can withstand the evil one. We need to be Bible people. We need to be praying people. Lastly, we need to be community people. The writer of Hebrews says that we should not neglect to meet together. Now, there are a number of reasons why we should not neglect meeting together. But one of the most significant is because when you are a lone sheep, you are easy prey for Satan. When you forsake the gathering, thinking you can just muster up the strength on your own, you are easy prey for Satan. We need each other in unity to withstand the schemes of Satan together as a community of people. Let's go before the Lord in prayer. God, we need you. I pray that we would be reminded of the strength that you have given us, God. Yet not I, but Christ in me, so the song says, apart from the Lord, I have no strength. Yet, Lord, in you, you are able to see me and us through. So, God, would we trust in you? Would we rely on you? Would we humble ourselves and see our need for you, God? And would you keep us, help us withstand the schemes of Satan until you call us home or until you return to gather your people? God, we love you and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.